welcome to Creekside Church. Didn't expect to see snow on the ground this morning. Feel like maybe we should be singing some Christmas songs, but uh, let's go ahead and stand together. Uh, let, me, let me open our time with a word of prayer. Father, we are thankful for King Jesus. Um, Lord, let us fix our eyes on him. He is the author and the perfecter of our faith. He is the one uh, alone that we can look to who is perfect in all of his ways. Father, we just pray that we would put our hope in him. Help us to be uh, disciples who take up our cross, who follow you. Uh, help us to lay aside the distractions of the week and just come before your throne and worship. It's in Jesus' name we pray. continue to worship in the word I'd just like to pray for uh, many needs but father I come to you this morning and I think of the Cullens as they are kind of holed up in Mississippi we thank you for the provisions for them for their uh, temporary assignment here at home while they're waiting to go back and and we pray for a smooth transition as they seek to leave the mission in the hands of the Ugandans and I pray that you would continue to help them to be effective as possible in ministry there in Uganda, even though they're doing it remotely. Father, I also want to pray for our church family and for the many who are hurting and, and challenged and struggling. Lord, I continue to pray for our, our brother Alfonso as he uh, mourns the loss of his mother, and I pray and ask that you would comfort and encourage he and his family. We ask that you'd give physical stamina and strength to those who are ill and those who are recovering. I know I won't mention everyone, but Lord, I know that um, Mary Bristow and, um, and uh, Debbie Clarkson who are struggling with corona, I pray that you'd give them health and strength, and I just pray that their symptoms wouldn't get worse, and I pray you'd protect the rest of their family from getting it. We ask that you'd work in Marge McKeever's life, Lord. Just continue to give her boldness to be a witness for you. And I pray that her heart would continue to overflow with the love of Christ. Give her wisdom as she tries to make decisions, Father, about the future, whether she should seek treatment or not. And Lord, I, I continue to pray for you to bring healing and strength to, to Mark Grubb and, and to so many others, Lord, who are facing difficulties and challenges. And I pray that as we uh, look into your word this morning, that we might find encouragement as your children, as your people, as we seek to, to grow in our walk with Christ, as we seek to let the word of God have its way in us, that we might receive it for what it really is, the word of God and not the word of men. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as you know, or maybe you don't know, but uh, our mission team from Haiti got back and they spent uh, their time in Haiti. We're looking forward to hearing more about that. Just a little FYI, if you go up to Norb or Karen or Ryan, uh, just a reminder, uh, don't just say, how was your trip, <clears throat> unless you have an hour or two, okay? 
Ask them one specific question. What was one highlight of your trip? What was one thing that really encouraged you? What was one thing that challenged you? What one thing are you going to take away that you're going to, you know, put into practice here? What's one thing we can pray for you about, okay? And then I would encourage you at some other time to pull them aside and say, hey, give me me a little debrief on what happened. I'd like to know uh, what really went on, but, uh, you know, block some time out for that. But I was thinking about that in light of this morning's sermon, because in Matthew chapter 10, as we get back into our series in Matthew, we're looking at Jesus giving some instructions to his disciples as he gets ready to send them out on a short-term mission. And in preparation for the Haiti trip, uh, Norb and Karen and Ryan went, underwent weeks of preparation and weeks of training. They went through a training set series and got ready to go. And in Matthew chapter 10, verses 1 through 15, which we're looking at this morning, Jesus is transitioning from what uh, you, you heard last week with what was the call to compassion, right? The, the, the motivation for sharing the message of the gospel is compassion in Matthew chapter 9, at the end of Matthew chapter 9. And then not only the motivation, but what's the means of doing that? Well, what? Pray for workers. So prayer and people. And now Jesus is transitioning into getting them involved in the game. Okay, we can pray, and we should, and we should have a heart of compassion, but then we should go. And so that's what Jesus is doing here. He's getting them directly involved in ministry. He told them what. He told them why. He showed them how. He'd been doing ministry with them. And now he says, okay, your turn. It's time for you to go and get this done. Unleash them. And the final step in this equipping them for effective engagement in ministry comes to us in Matthew chapter 10. Verses 1 through 42, we're just looking at the first 15 verses this morning, and that's the instructions, kind of the the guidelines, the lesson plan for effective ministry, not just for short-termers, not just for vocational ministers, but also for all of us as believers. And then in verses 16 through 23, he's going to lay out for us what to expect as we embark in ministry. And then the last part of the chapter has to do with, and here's what it's going to cost you. So uh, hold on to your seat, strap in your seatbelt, because this is not necessarily fun stuff, but it's really true stuff. It's really good stuff. It's necessary stuff if we're going to be servants of the Lord. And so the concepts that we're going to look at here apply, yes, directly to the apostles, but not just to the apostles, but to all of us who've been called into ministry service And not just vocational ministry, but also other sorts of ministry. So in Matthew chapter 10, I invite you to open your Bible there or get your phone out or whatever device you have and pull up your Bible app and get ready to go through the first 10 verses of Matthew chapter 10 where the Lord takes us through two steps to equip his followers for effective ministry. And I'm going to read the text. So... Uh, Actually, would you just stand up with me as we read the text? I'd appreciate if you do that. We don't do that all the time, but uh, in the Old Testament, they stood up for half a day while the Scripture was being read. So I think we could stand it for just a few minutes as we read the Word of God in deference to Him. Verse Chapter 10, beginning with verse 1, And having summoned His twelve disciples... 
He gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Now, the names of the 12 apostles, now you notice he's talking about the 12 disciples, specifically the 12 apostles. And he names them here. The first, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed him. These 12 Jesus sent out after instructing them, saying, Do not go in the way of the Gentiles and do not enter any city of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as you go, preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. Do not, do not acquire gold or silver or copper for your money belts or a bag for your journey or even two tunics or sandals or a staff for the worker is worthy of his support and into whatever city or village you enter, inquire who is worthy in it and abide there until you go away. And as you enter the house, give it your greeting. And if the house is worthy, let your greeting of peace come upon you. But if it is unworthy, let your greeting of peace return to you. And whoever does not receive you nor heed your words as you go out of your house or, or that city, shake off the dust of your feet. Truly I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. Okay, you may be seated. So here we have two, I mean, now there may be more, but I've laid it out this way, two Steps that Jesus takes. First of all, uh, we're, we're invested with divine authority. Okay, we're invested with divine authority. There's two ways that God prepares uh, his apostles and us by extension. First of all, he summons his disciples. And it says in verse 1 of chapter 10, and having summoned his 12 disciples. Now, who are these guys? They're flawed. <laughs> They're frail, and they're feeble people. Just like the people to whom they ministered, or were sent to minister, and just like those of us who follow in their footsteps. They're just ordinary folks. So it should be encouragement to us that, you know, it's not a matter of how scholarly we are. It's not a matter of how charismatic we are. It's not a matter of how educated we are. It's not a matter of how fluent we are. It's a matter of that we are. If we're one of his children, he's, he, he calls them into his work. Now, Peter was impetuous. James and John were boisterous. Remember, they have the names here. The sons of Boanerges means the sons of thunder. <laughs> you know? And then we have Matthew, the tax collector. He was a despised guy. And then we have Judas, a traitor. Now, that's not all of them, but that's among them. And so we have this motley crew that is very much like the people they were going to, very much like us. And so we can find some connections in them. And so just like then, today, Christ entrusts this glorious, uh, you know, he entrusts ordinary people with an extraordinary message and an extraordinary mission. So think about that. Ordinary people with an extraordinary mission and an extraordinary message. That's what he does. He calls them. Then he doesn't just summon them, but he strengthens his disciples. In chapter 10, at the end of verse 1, he says, He gave them authority 
He gave them authority. It describes the unique authority, authority, and this is specifically to them, to, to, for over unclean spirits, to cast them out and to heal every disease and sickness. So they have this unique authority as the apostles. In light of their role, which is specific in God's plan, and I want you to look at First Corinthians or Second Corinthians chapter twelve, verse twelve. Uh, it should be on the screen. You'll be able to see. It's not on the screen. Okay, so take your Bibles and turn to Second Corinthians chapter twelve. Okay, that's a good deal. Second Corinthians chapter twelve, verse twelve, is. Paul talking to the church at Corinth and he says the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles. These are the things that were specifically given to the apostles to do and it it marked them out as apostles. Okay, So they had this power that was given to them. Now believers today were also given power, not necessarily the same power that the apostles were given, but were given power. We're given God's power, but we don't express it in the same particular way. You know, it's a political season, so I'm going to say this. No U.S. citizen has the same constitutional, has all of the same constitutional powers as the president. The president has some unique constitutional powers. But every, every citizen has some constitutional powers. The president can appoint, just nominate judges. The president can give executive orders. The president can pardon people. These are constitutional authorities that he's been given. Now, every citizen has the authority to speak freely, has the authority to gather religiously, religious expression, bear arms, those kinds of things are given. So in the same way we have here the apostles given some unique responsibilities, unique authority, but that doesn't mean that we don't have authority. No, we have been given authority derivatively and God gives it to us. So the first thing is that we see that the Lord invests us with authority. So here we are, the motley crew, but we have the authority given to us by God Almighty to be his servants. Some vocationally, some short-term ministry, but all of us in everyday life. Secondly, we're instructed on doing ministry, and that's the bulk of the text in verses 5 through 15. And so we're going to look at several lessons uh, that ensure effectiveness in gospel ministry. Some of them may be a little more particularly tailored towards those who are in vocational ministry. Some for those who are in short term. But most of it can be relevant for all of us. So first of all, we enjoy a divine commission. In the first part of verse 5, he says, The twelve Jesus sent out. I like the way when you read the scripture, it's like the sent out part is first. Right? We're sent by Jesus. The king. And this is the main thing, the the Lord's instruction, he's he's sending them out. Uh, John MacArthur calls this the the first, the divine commission, okay? The already proven king, Jesus has already been proven as the king, as we've been marching through Matthew, right? Through his works and his words, he has already demonstrated that he is the king of Israel. (laughs) And so it's the king who's given the orders, not just anybody. Uh, You know, somebody, well, Pastor Steve said I should do this. No. If Jesus says you should do it, you know, now if Pastor Steve says what Jesus says, then, you know, that's good. So we do what Jesus says, and he gives the orders. Our good friend, Romaine, uh, who's now with the Lord, 
was serving on the USS Hazelwood. I want you to see a picture uh, of the USS Hazelwood. He was serving on the USS Hazelwood during World War II when a Japanese kamikaze pilot uh, hit the deck and just about destroyed the ship. By God's grace, Romaine was spared, but the Hazelwood limped its way back to Pearl Harbor and then was repaired. The Japanese kamikaze pilot was doing what his king had said he should do, the emperor of Japan, ordering him to be a kamikaze. The king of the universe has commissioned us as his children to go out and to preach the gospel, okay? The 12 apostles, they received a unique, historically bound commission. That's what we're reading here in Matthew chapter 10. But that historically bound commission from the divine king sets the stage for God's commissioning of all his people as it's laid out for us in Matthew chapter 28. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. You say, well, yeah, that was given to the disciples. Yeah, it was, but those disciples were supposed to make disciples who make disciples who make disciples who make disciples. So if it was given to them, it's given to us because we're supposed to make disciples. Hope I didn't lose you on that. But that's what God's called us to do is to, to make disciples. We have the same commissioning. And he says... So he sent them out after instructing them. Now, the word instructing them is interesting. I didn't know this until I was doing my research, but in almost all of its uses, it carries with it uh, this idea of binding those instructed to respond appropriately. So when this instructing is to bind us to doing what we're instructed to do, just like if you were in the military, and your CO, your commanding officer, said, I want you to, you know, peel potatoes. Well, okay, you got KP duty, you know. Uh, I want you to run a mile. You run a mile. You do what you're told because this person has command over you. Well, Jesus is the king, and he has command over us. The Lord's instructions demand our obedience. A divine commission. Then there is this embrace of a coherent mission. If you look at the end of verse 5, he says, do not go into the in the way of the Gentiles and do not enter any city of Samaria but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. That's a specific mission. To carry the message to the lost people of the house of Israel. This brief apostolic mission, this short-term mission they were sent on was specifically targeted towards the people of Israel, the lost sheep. These lost sheep are described in the Old Testament, like in Jeremiah chapter 50, verse 6, uh, it, it says that my people have become lost sheep. Their shepherds have led them astray. They have made them turn aside on the mountains. They have gone among the mountains to the hill and have forgotten their resting place. He's describing the fact that the shepherds, the spiritual leaders of Israel, had led the people astray. Well, as Jesus looked, if you remember from Matthew chapter 9, verse 36, he had compassion on the, the people because they were like sheep without a shepherd. The people in Jesus' day were just as destitute spiritually. They were lost because the Pharisees and the scribes were leading them in a way that was contrary to God. So these lost sheep 
are the people who are the social and religious rejects, if you will. They're the unregenerate people among the people of Israel. Now, you know, it's a political season, and so each party is trying to, each party candidates, they're trying to appeal to the base. They have to get their base around them. Well, God sent the apostles through Jesus out to rally the base, to, to meet their needs and to talk to the people that needed to be hearing the message of the gospel. But why just go to the people of Israel? What was the motivation? I can't give you definitively. I can give you some scriptural ideas. First of all, because of the compassion of Christ, which was presented last week, right? Matthew chapter 9, verse 6. He has compassion. When Jesus was going, verse 35 of chapter 9, about all the cities and villages teaching their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness and seeing the multitudes, he felt compassion. So that was one motivation, but then not just compassion, but because of his covenant love, God's love for his people Israel. This is Deuteronomy chapter 6. I'm not going to go there, but that's what it is. He has a love for his people, Israel. And then finally, it's not just his covenant love, but his commitment to bring salvation to all people through his people, Israel. This is John chapter 4, uh, verse, verse 22. Jesus, speaking to the woman of the well, he says, salvation is from the Jews. You see, Jesus the king is the seed of Abraham through whom God promised all the nations of the earth should be blessed. And so he wants to make sure they get it. And he personally, and, and Jesus is not just exclusive to Israel always, but in this mission they were. Remember, Jesus, he'd already ministered to the lost people from the nations. Centurion slave, he, he had healed. Jesus in, Matt, in John chapter 4, he was, what, meeting with this woman at the well, right? She was not a... A Jewish person so Jesus had modeled it and Jesus also went on to require his disciples and challenge them and us to do it Acts chapter 1 verse 8 and you receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria those nasty half-breed Jewish people in Samaria yeah you're supposed to reach out to them too. Even Jonah, remember Jonah, you're supposed to go to the Ninevites, the pagan Ninevites, and then to the uttermost parts of the earth. So Jesus is not exclusive always in his mission, but here he is. And it's for a purpose. He's reaching out to these people. He is, uh, his love is extended to all people of all nations. That's what we're called to do. We are given the ministry to carry the message to believers, uh, to unregenerate people of all nations, every tribe and tongue and people and nation. As we saw this morning in the first service, that book of Revelation chapter 7, where they, the, the, those who are before the throne have been washed clean in the blood of the Lamb from every tongue and tribe and people and nation. That's what we're called to. Remember, a friend of ours who was recruiting some people for a short-term mission trip one time, he was talking to a, a gentleman, and the gentleman said, you know, I just, I just don't really have a heart for those people. And, uh, and our friend, who's pretty, pretty stern, he goes, well, I'm pretty sure that God does. God does have a heart for all people. And he sent his apostles here 
just to the tribes of Israel. So that salvation would come through the Jews. But he wanted to start there first. And that's an important part. So I just want you to join me in saying, Lord, from this, would you just enlarge my heart? For all people. To have compassion on the distressed and the downcast. The unregenerate people of all nations. I was standing in the return line at Menards the other day. Okay, had my mask on, doing the social distancing thing, you know. So there were like four people in line, one person up there at the counter, and then one person six feet, and then me six feet behind them, and then somebody, well, actually, I don't know, three or four feet. We, we, we don't know measurements too well, but anyhow, we're standing. There's these gaps, and some guy walked in with his mask on, and he just walked right between us, right, right through us, and went over and stood right in front of the, the other counter. I didn't say anything, which was a big step for me. <laughs> and I just stood there and like, and then I started thinking, okay, Steve, you know, like every one of us here, like a lot of the people around me, he's probably, you know, he's just a lost guy. He's just thinking about himself. I need to have compassion instead of being a knucklehead. And God wants us to have compassion on people that are around us, the people in your workplace, the people in your family, the people who are in your neighborhood, in our neighborhoods. God wants us to have compassion on these people as lost sheep in need of a Savior. Now, maybe he knew the Lord and he's just acting like a knucklehead. We do that sometimes too. And that's not good. But that's what God wants us. We have a meth. A, 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 a ministry, a mission. So I don't know what the mission, you know, you think about it. You have a mission in your neighborhood. You have a mission in your family. You have a mission that are, we have people that went to Haiti on a mission. They, they sensed that that was the, the mission for them at that time. But we have this mission, but we also have a message. And that's verse 7. He said, and as you go, preach. You see, this is where some people get messed up. You see, the primary focus all the way through the scriptures on the message, this is the method of communicating the message, is to preach, to speak. You've heard this, right? Preach the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words. I would submit to you, you cannot preach the gospel if you do not use words. You can show the gospel, you can incarnate love, but you cannot communicate the gospel, I cannot, unless we use words. Now, you know, it's kind of nice, oh, I know, I think it was Mother Teresa who said that, so who wants to go up against Mother Teresa, right? Uh, or somebody like that. But the, the point is, Jesus says, preach. That's the first thing he said. That's the imperative. We have a message to preach, emphasizing that the apostles and those who follow after him, we have a word-based ministry, okay? And, you know, it's easier just to try to say, well, and we kind of excuse ourselves. Well, I'm just, you know, I'm just one of those silent people. I just kind of show, show God's love. Great! But we do good works to build goodwill. Why? So we can share good news. And if we don't share the good news... People don't know the good news. 
preach the word. Uh, Romans chapter 10, Paul kind of trumps this. He kind of nails this down. He says, whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. But how shall they call upon him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him in whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear unless a preacher is sent? Right? I'm paraphrasing now, okay? Unless with a preacher. And how will they preach unless they're sent? And then he says this, quoting Isaiah 52, How lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. It's the good news. We have, the, and that's the good news. We're supposed to, to share it. I was sitting at a dining room table with a guy one time, and I had been talking to him about the gospel, sharing the gospel with him, and I was on a, on a, on a mission trip, and uh, he said, you know, I really want to believe in Jesus, but I don't. And then God brought this to my mind, and he said, well, what you need to do is you need to expose yourself more to God's word. So I'm going to challenge you. I'm getting ready to leave. I'm going to challenge you to spend time in the Word. I, I don't know what I told him. Read the Gospel of John or something like that. And why would I say that? Because God brought to my mind Romans chapter 10, verse 17. Faith comes by hearing. And hearing by the Word of Christ. That's why I say it. Because Paul said, without the proclamation of the Gospel, it's not the Gospel that's being presented. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. We have this message. What was the message? Look at verse 7. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's the message. Now, they had to tease that out a little bit. It's the same message that Jesus had said, or uh, actually John had said in Matthew chapter 3, and Jesus had said in verse 17, it's the, the message, the announcement of the good news about the King Jesus, about King Jesus. Matthew is all about the king, King Jesus, and it's the kingdom. And the good news about the king is that he came ushering in the kingdom. And this is a call to repentance. Matthew chapter 3, verse 2, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, repent for the kingdom is at hand. Matthew chapter, or Mark chapter 6, uh, verse is it, uh, let me see, Mark chapter 6, or Matthew, Mark 6, 6, 12, he says, repent. They went out and they repented. They said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In spite of our delusions as people, okay, in spite of our delusions, we're all sinful. We're all rebels. We all want to do our own thing. And we deserve God's judgment. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, right? That's the bad news. But the good news is that God sent the king, Jesus. And the king came to earth. And he confirmed that he was the king through his words and his works and ultimately his death and his resurrection. He proved he's the king. That he died in our place. And all who believe in his death as the substitutionary atonement for their sins are forgiven and are brought into the kingdom. Now that's the initial coming into the kingdom, but then we continue. That means we submit ourselves to the reign of Christ in our life. As we continue on in life, we submit ourselves to the reign of Christ in our life. And as we get ready for heaven and Jesus returns, then he reigns forever. So the kingdom of heaven is at hand is, hey, 
enter the kingdom now through salvation, continue in the kingdom as you are sanctified, and ultimately enjoy the kingdom throughout eternity if you're one of his children. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And that's the message, that we can have forgiveness through the king. It's an announcement that demands a response. Uh, you have cell phones. You get, you get alerts on your cell phone, you know, like uh, amber alerts for, you know, somebody. You get, uh, maybe you're signed up for your local news station or your weather station. You get an alert, right? Well, what is that all about? I mean, I don't get too many alerts because I don't do too much with alerts. But if you get an alert, you're supposed to do something with it, right? You either ignore it, you push mute or you get rid of it, <clears throat> or you respond to it. This is an announcement. Do something with the announcement is the idea, right? Only through repentance and trusting in Christ can we be delivered from the penalty of death. Acts chapter 3, verse 19 says this, Therefore repent and return, that your sins may be wiped away. Get that? Repent and return. It's I'm going this way away from God. Repentance is 180 to return. And now I'm returning to God. Repentance is an intellectual awareness of my need for cleansing. It's an emotional response of sorrow for the sin that I've committed. And it is an action of turning and trusting in God. Think about little Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was a wee little man. A wee little man was he. The Lord he wanted to see. So what did he do? He climbed up in the sycamore tree. And Jesus said, Zacchaeus, you come down for I'm going to go to your house today. And what happened in the house? Lord, I'll give back. I'll give half of, my, half of what I have to the poor. And if I've defrauded anyone, I'll give them four times as much. Repentance. And Zacchaeus returned. He was walking away from God. And he returned through the person and the work of Jesus. It It is what it means to repent. And today, we're more convinced than ever. We're told by our culture and our society. I remember I talked about the naturalistic philosophy. That we are basically good people. Which is a lie from the pit of hell. But that's what we're told today. And so we're told that we're basically good people and we refuse to acknowledge our rebellion or recognize and we're resentful of any suggestion that there is an objective standard by which we are measured and if we don't measure up, then we are going to be condemned. Oh no, that's not for us, says our culture. And often in our church, in our churches, you know what's sad? In many of our churches, we're told that God supports And he endorses and celebrates what the scripture clearly condemns. And or God is our personal genie. (laughs) You know, just uh, rub the lamp and put in your wish and God will produce it for you. That's what we're told in our churches and in our culture. Good is evil. And evil is good. This is Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20. It's evidence. Just this past week, uh, some of you were keeping track of watching the Amy Coney Barrett 
uh, you know, Supreme Court nominee uh, hearings, and uh, evidently she said something. I didn't hear it specifically, but oh, she made some reference to sexual preference, which immediately that had to change. Because sexual preference means that, what, what that means is that you, you have this choice as to whom you are sexually attracted to. And according to the norm of our day and the cultural wishes of the LGBTQ plus group, that is a hardwired thing. You can't change that in a person. That's not a choice. That's a hardwired thing. And so she was making a disparaging comment. So basically Webster's Dictionary changed it so that now it's supposed to be a um, bad thing, right? It's offensive to use that word sexual preference so that somehow people can choose who they're attracted to. But the same group of people who say, no, who you're attracted to is a hardwired thing are the ones who say that your gender identity is a choice. Now, this is, which is it? It's, I know that's confusing. But <laughs> if you're thinking people, it should be confusing. Because it doesn't make sense. You know, who we're attracted to is, yeah, we, we choose you know, now, I may, you know, some people have an attraction to members of the same sex. That's okay. I get that, that that, that, that happens. I, I'm not saying that doesn't happen, but that's not a natural thing. And so we, we should choose what's natural. And my identity is, according to the scriptures, at least I believe, fixed. But that's indicative of our culture. So the church tells us God's a genie, that uh, you're, you're basically, we can support you in whatever perversion you want to engage in. That's in many churches. And then the culture says anything goes. And so when you and I stand up and we say to people, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, declaring that the entrance into the kingdom comes only through repentance, turning from our sin and trusting in Christ, it's absolutely abhorrent to the world. They're ticked off. They don't like it. Well, I don't know about you, but I don't really like my sin being presented to me either. I don't like to see my selfishness. I don't like to see my pride. I don't like to see jealousy. I don't like to see greed. But when it's there, it's there. And it's not of God. And so the only way to be brought into the kingdom is to repent and to receive Jesus as our Savior. And this is the message because there is justification only through faith in Jesus Christ. Paul said it in Romans chapter 3. 28, therefore we believe that no man is justified apart uh, from, from, from Christ. Justification is by faith alone. Okay, that's how we're justified. And it's at hand, so there's this urgency. Folks, we have the only hope. The only hope for the divided, distressed, delusional world of people living self destructive lives. And it's not because we're so good, it's because God is good. And we have that message to carry to them, the good news of salvation. So we have a, a mission. We have a message. We are supposed to establish compelling credentials. This is verse 8. He says, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers. Now, why would he tell the apostles to do that? 
Well, he'd empowered him to do that. Why? Well, these are just your run-of-the-mill people, right? They're just like you and me. They, they don't have a lot of, well, I'm sorry, I have a little more theological training, but a lot of them don't have a theological training. They don't have a lot of experience. So what did Jesus need to do? He needed up their cred. What did Jesus do to establish his cred? Well, he healed the sick, cast out demons, you know, he did all that stuff. So he gives them the same power that he had so that people will see that their message and their mission is just as Jesus is. And so he gives them this unique ability and this invested them with miraculous powers to visibly confirm their authority and of their mission and their message by doing what Jesus did. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12, which we looked at before. These are signs and wonders and miracles that were given to the apostles, particularly at that time for that purpose. Uh, back in the day, uh, when the Boy Scouts were actually a viable organization, uh, now I guess they're going into bankruptcy, uh, but uh, I learned a little motto. A scout is trustworthy, loyal, helpful, friendly, courteous, kind, brave, thrifty, clean, and reverent. Maybe some other things in there. Scouts were known by their integrity. Christians are known by their compassion. What did Jesus ask them to do? Heal the sick. Verse 8, raise the dead, cleanse, cleanse the lepers. These were acts of compassion. Moved in their hearts to, to care for the people who were hurting. And while we don't have these apostolic gifts and this apostolic commissioning the same way they do. Uh, yes, I think people are healed today. I don't see, you know, but, but we're not empowered as those people saying, I can raise the dead, I can heal the people through. No, God does heal people. He has power to do that. I don't know that too many raising from the dead today, you know, these kinds of things. But we have been given and marked, are to be marked by compassion in the same way that the apostles were marked by compassion. That's the mark of a Christian to help the needy and the poor, the sick, the unregenerate. And not only that, but believers are marked and have credentials because we have power. The disciples, apostles had power unique to them, but we have been given power. Power for what? Power for sharing Christ. This morning in the first service, he's saying, there's power in the blood. When we proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, there is power in the blood of Christ. There is power by the Spirit of God. Paul says in, at the end of Colossians that he says we proclaim him admonishing every man and instructing every man that we might present every man complete in Christ according to his power which works mightily within us. We have the Spirit of God that enables us, enlightens our understanding and enables our ministry and empowers us to mature in Christ. So we have power for ministry just like the apostles did. And the, the last thing we see is that they were marked by this generosity. It says in, in verse 8, freely you have received, freely give. Right? You see, they could have used these powers, right? In their day and age, they could have used it to make a lot of money. I mean, hey, just set up a corner shop. Uh, here's a healing store. Just come here and get, get healed, Right? Oh, you got a dead person? Bring them on. We'll, we'll, just, we'll just raise them up. That had been a pretty lucrative business, right? No. Freely you have been given. 
freely what you've given out freely you have received freely give okay they didn't use them for their personal gain we're not supposed to use whatever God has given us the power and the gifts and the abilities and the talents and the education for our lucrative benefit we're supposed to use it for the glory of God I like what John MacArthur says he says it was God's power not theirs and it was to be used for his glory not their prosperity So vocational ministers and ordinary believers were supposed to serve without greed, you know. Freely use our time, our talents, our treasures, our education, our gifts, our abilities. You know, we prayed this morning for Marge McKeever. Now bless Marge's heart. For years, she has ministered to the refugee community in the Des Moines area. Given of her time, her efforts, her energies, serving sacrificially as a follower of Christ. What an example she is of freely you have received, freely give. That's what God calls us to. We are to model that. And and then lastly, we're supposed to exercise a controlling faith. Notice what it says in in verse 9 and verse 10. Do not acquire gold or silver or copper for your money belts. And you kind of go, what's going on? There's these manifestations of a faith that governs our lives. First of all, we calmly trust God for our provision. So they're sending them out. Jesus is sending them out. And he's saying, don't take anything with you. Okay, I don't know. Norb, Karen, Ryan, you know. Again, this is not prescriptive, it's descriptive, okay? I'm sure you took a little bit of money with you, uh, you know, when you went to Haiti, right? You had to buy some food in, in Miami, you had to buy some stuff when you got to Haiti. But Jesus is saying, don't take anything, you know? Just go out and trust, you know? He speaks to those who are sent and to the supporters. So, so God's workers are not demanding a high payment you know they're freely they have received freely give and they're not accumulating a bunch of wealth ahead of time i don't think it's saying you know a short-term missionary should never take a little bit of money with them but what he's saying is even those who are preparing for long-term missions it's not like well you have to make a million dollars before you can serve as a missionary you have to have five hundred thousand dollars in the bank or two hundred fifty thousand or a hundred thousand dollars no if god's called you go if god's called you to serve do it I think that's what he's saying, that he, he's, he's doing that. We have this young couple that we know, and they have a family, they have three or four children, and they're getting ready to go to the mission field. They don't have a lot of money, but they know that God's called them to go. What about you? You think God's called you to reach your neighbors? Maybe God's called you to take up a, a distributing uh, literature. Maybe God's called you to hey, take some meals to your neighbors. You go, I don't know. We're having a struggle feeding our own family, but I feel like God wants me to share with them. Maybe God wants you to do an Operation Christmas Child box, and you say, well, I don't know how I can do that, but hey, I believe what he's saying here is trust me. I'm sending you out. Don't pad your pocketbook. That's the money bag, okay? Gold, silver, and copper were the three most precious metals and the coinage of the day. He's saying, don't pad your pocketbook with the money before you go out on this ministry. Then he says, don't take a a, a pouch, which means food bag, okay? Sack lunch. You know, don't don't take the sack, don't take two sandals and, and two tunics and you know what they use a tunic for? Well, they wore it, but they also covered up with it at night. When they slept out 
in the open. Don't take a staff with you, which they would use to fight off the criminals and also wild animals. So he's saying, I'm going to take care of you. What God calls us to, he provides for. Our dear friend Dave, for years, uh, he was working uh, a job. The guy is brilliant. He could be making an, a lot of money uh, if he was in a different location doing what he does. He's highly trained, but he made, you know, not so much money. And every year he had a heart to go on short-term missions. And almost every year he was like, I, I don't know, if God provides the money, I'll go. If God provides the money, I'll go. And guess what? Every year that I know of, God provided the money, and Dave went. And God used Dave, he sent Dave, but he had supporters who had been freely given to, who freely gave, so Dave could go. And that's the, that's the marvel of it. And, and why would we be controlled by this faith? Well, if you look at the end of verse 10, he says, for the worker is worthy of his wages. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, uh, verse 14, Paul says, So also the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. So for full-time vocational workers, uh, even short-term mission people, they, they, they proclaim the gospel, they should get their living from the gospel. That means that they should be provided for. Okay? They, they go in faith, and others give in faith. And most of us are givers. We're not all goers in the, in the sense of full-time or even short-term missions. We're, but we're all goers to our neighbors. We're supposed to be doing that. Givers are essential to the work. I wonder, and this has challenged me, how am I personally doing, how are we corporately doing in giving to support those who are going? I can let you know this, the elders have been praying about it. One of the things we have as a goal for the elders is that our mission giving would be at least 10% of our general budget. We're not even close. So that's our, our vision. And, you know, I mean, that's a start, you know. Because I, you know, the tithe, the tithe in the Old Testament was just the beginning place. It wasn't the end, it was the beginning. So that's, that's a goal. We want you to join us in that. So we calmly trust God for a provision, then we courteously seek others' participation. In verses 10 and 11, he says, um, and uh, particularly verse 11, and in whatever city or village you enter, inquire who is worthy. <laughs> uh, yeah, okay. Just as the apostles were instructed to invite others to share in the ministry, so we are to invite it. And I think this is, I mean, this is one thing we need to work on personally in the church here. When our mission teams go, we need to step up to the plate better than we have in supporting them. And all of us who go, you need to let other people help you go. Okay? That's biblical. I mean, I've talked, you know, like, well, you know, I'll just pay for it. I get that. It's easier. In some ways, because, you know, it's kind of humiliating maybe you think to go and ask for money or get somebody to support you. No, that's biblical because the goers are to be supported by the givers and they can pay some themselves too. That's good too. But they're going. The workman should be worthy of his, of his hire. Okay, that's my little two cents there for that. Worthy people are the, the people who are 
spiritually mature that, that receive them into their home. Okay? They're the ones that help. So we should be finding those people who are worthy, those spiritually mature people to help in, in, the, in the giving. Okay? And then they stayed with them. And then thirdly, we, we graciously engage ministry interaction. Look at verse 12. And as you enter the house. Now, okay, this is a little confusing to me because in verse 11 he says, you go and you find somebody who's worthy, a spiritually mature person, generous person, and you stay with that person. This is the believers helping believers, right? Verse 12 is a different house. This is a house that's being served and not a house in which they're staying. Follow that? It's a house in which they're going to serve, not the house in which they're staying. And so he says, the house entered is, is where they serve, not where they're staying. Graciously they extend this greeting, shalom, they say, shalom, which was a desire. They, they're expressing a desire that God's blessing would rest on these people, that, that God's spiritual well-being for their household. But then verse 13, he says, and if the house is worthy, receptive. And you see in verse 14, and whoever does not receive you and nor heed your words. So this is a household that receives them and receives their word. This household gets the blessing. The blessing rests upon them. And so you rejoice in it. The apostles whom God's blessing will rest, you know, they are worthy. Okay, the, the place where it does. When we, uh, we uh, Mark and Jane, I'll call them, they came to faith in Christ and they came out of a really, really difficult background. But once they came to faith in Christ, guess what? They became part of the church family. So they had been ministered to by the church and they were proven worthy. And so the blessing came upon them and the blessing came upon the church because they worked together for the service of the Lord. And then finally we see that we're, we're, we're to courageously face opposition. Because some people that we go to minister to will resist. And I think what he's talking about here are those who are entrenched in their resistance. Verse 13, the end of it. But if it is not worthy, let your greeting of peace return to you. It's not that they were blessed and the blessing was taken away. They were offered the blessing and they rejected it. Okay. Because they didn't come to faith in Christ. This blessing only comes through faith in Christ. And so they rejected Christ. And some people, as compassionate as God is, as patient as he is, as long-suffering as he is, in 2, Corinthians, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, he's long-suffering, not willing that any should perish. There's a point at which some people just say, I want nothing to do with God. And at that point, he says the blessing won't rest on them. At that point, he says, you shake off the dust of your feet. This was a symbolic gesture when the Israelites walked through Gentile territory. After they got done with the Gentile territory, they shook the dust off their feet. In other words, they were rejecting those whom they were convinced God could not reach. And that's the harsh word here. There are some people that we come to a place that just are so hardened against the gospel, okay, Done. Not, not going there anymore. That's what he says. And the sad reality is, if you look at verse 15, the, these people incur a judgment in the final judgment that is greater than that which Sodom and Gomorrah experienced. They must be pretty bad because Sodom and Gomorrah were obliterated by fire and brimstone on earth. So their judgment in heaven is going to be not very good. But these people who reject the gospel are going to be worse off. And so I plead with you, if you're listening or if you're here this morning and you do not know Jesus, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. 
God's call to you is, will you turn from your rebellion and will you repent and acknowledge your sin and accept that Jesus' death paid the debt that you owe so that you can be forgiven and have the promise of eternal life and enter the kingdom of heaven and enjoy the blessing of God forever. That's a message we bring. It's good news. It's the only good news. And if you know Jesus, will you, will you pray with me that we would faithfully execute the commands and the call of God to live out these lessons as we seek to serve the King? And as we close and we, we break bread and we drink this cup, and it's not the way we used to do it, but you have the little thing on your, your chair. And uh, I, I was thinking this morning, it's kind of like it must be like the manna in the wilderness, you know, because that, that stuff is really nasty, that bread, you know. Uh, it, it's got to be, you know. So let's not be the wilderness people complaining about the manna. Uh, but you, you, you take the bread and the cup, and what a, what a symbol of Christ's body broken in his blood shed so that we could enter the kingdom. The king sacrificed his life so we could enter the kingdom. And so if you're here this morning and you know Jesus, take a moment and just thank him and search your heart, confess your sin, and drink, eat and drink in rejoicing at what God has done. Let's pray. Father, take your spirit and work in us for your glory. We pray, Father, you would help us to be people sent, commissioned from you. People not only commissioned, but empowered. People who are clear on our mission, clear on our message. People who are trusting and dependent upon you, who live by faith to serve you for your glory and the gain of your kingdom. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.